Welcome back, listeners, to Radio Free South Bronx. That wonderful hum in the background that you hear is actually our new office space. We are now located at the Bronx Incubator, which is in the Banknote Building in the Hunts Point area. We're really happy to now have a space that we can call home to this work that we're doing for all of you. Again, if you have anyone that you'd like to nominate for an episode or if you'd like to nominate yourself to tell your story on Radio Free South Bronx, please email us, Instagram us, Facebook us. Um, on social media, our tag is at Radio Free SBX and on email, we're Radio Free South Bronx at gmail.com. Today's episode is going to be on cash bail. The bail system is an extremely corrupt way to keep people of color and poor people generally in prison. Bail was originated as a way to guarantee that people would go to their court dates, but now it's become a way that people are held for sometimes up to a year in jail waiting trial. If we have a criminal justice system with the presumption of innocence, then being held for a year in jail waiting trial is a direct violation of our constitutional rights and is inherently classist because if you have enough money you can set yourself free if you're too poor you're not allowed to set yourself free and that's a really powerful system to live under but don't just take it from me take it from the team at bronx freedom fund who we're going to interview today they work every day to ensure that people of color and people from lower economic classes have equal access to freedom while they await their trial. Well, my name is Richard Jimenez. I'm the director of Bronx Operations for the Bronx Freedom Fund. I take care of the administrative side of things, um, making sure the operations in terms of bail paying is running smoothly, as well as also paying bail for people and meeting clients, um, working with clients to get out of jail. And I've been working with the Bronx Freedom Fund for over a year, since the end of 2016. And I was born and raised in the Bronx and currently live in the Bronx. Keeping it in the Bronx, Mm -hmm. taking care of your own community. And you? Uh, My name is Yona. Uh, I'm a client advocate fellow at the Bronx Freedom Fund. And what I do is I'm a case manager. So like Richard, I pay bail for people and I help clients get out of jail. And then I also connect them with other service providers that help with housing, education, jobs, and a plethora of other services. And then I also do some policy advocacy with the Freedom Funds. Um, I'm Elena. I'm the interim director of the Bronx Freedom Fund. So I, I also am a case manager. I pay bail. I work with clients to help them get out and get to the resources that they need. I work in policy advocacy and I kind of manage our strategic relationships and partnerships with other orgs. And finally, this is Desiree Joy Frias, your host for today's episode. Um, and I found out a Bronx, about Bronx Freedom Fund on Twitter. Follow you know? us at Bronx Freedom. Yes, yes. So social media progressing social justice in our area. Cash bail is a remnant of... Of English common of law. English common law and therefore of English colon, colonialization. What isn't? Uh, so yeah, by the books, like the stated purpose of cash bail is to ensure that people return to court by putting up some form of collateral in the same way that when somebody goes bowling, they leave one shoe at the register so that they don't walk out with the bowling alley shoes. But what, what cash bail is really used for as is a way to incarcerate poor people of color to extract guilty pleas and to keep this machine of the criminal justice system moving. But do you feel that that was the purpose back then? Or it's kind of been twisted to, to fit that 
and serve that purpose today. Whenever you are connecting the law and money, you are creating like a system for the haves and the have-nots and creating two dual machines, one for people who can afford to get out and one for people who cannot. So I would imagine that this kind of similar dynamic has always existed. And Richard, can you kind of reiterate again the purpose of bail and are there other forms of bail other than cash bail? Sure. So again, the whole idea behind bail is to ensure that someone being seen being charged and seen in court, the defendant is making it back to court that if bail is put up, they have something at stake and something to lose if they don't make it to court. Never mind the fact that they are being charged in the court of law. But in New York State, there are technically nine different types of bail, including cash bail, which is uh, what we deal with, bail bond, which is what you'll see lying on 161 near the tombs, Kew Gardens, anywhere where you see a courthouse, you'll see a plethora of storefronts that uh, sell bail bonds. And there are partially secured bonds that are similar to bail bonds uh, in terms of cost for the defendant and the family that would actually get returned at the end of pays out. There are also, there's also property that can be put down for Collateral. There's also credit card bail, which you can swipe a card and they'll hold that whole they'll hold something against the credit card until you come back uh, and finish the case. So there are nine different types, but the most common are cash bail and bail bond. You'll almost always see it. Every now and then uh, you'll see someone and because it's limited to those two types, it makes it very difficult for people to come up with the resources to get out of jail. For example, if someone has to pay 10% of 1500 the difference between giving it to the court and expecting it back and paying it to a bail bondsman who will not only charge you that premium, but will also charge you additional fees to process. I'm doing air quotes can be detrimental for a family who might just be trying to get by on rent. Yeah, I mean, New York City is one of the most expensive cities in, in, in the world. And to think of suddenly having an extra charge of even $100 um, added to my budget or to my plans financially, that's a huge burden. I had no idea that there was nine different types of bail, and I've only heard of cash bail, so that's very interesting. And I think that kind of repressing information about bail is another way that um, the criminal justice system advances this goal of keeping people incarcerated. Yeah, those two forms, I mean, cash and bail bonds are the, the two that require the most upfront money and the two that are the most difficult for people to attain their freedom through. The fact that like those are the two that are most heavily relied on, I think that's something. And there have been a couple of different projects to try to convince judges to use these alternative forms of bail and to take advantage of what is actually one of the most progressive bail statutes in the country, but there has not been so much movement. And yeah, and Yona, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, in addition to your comment, how bail works? Because not everyone has paid a bail, not everyone has been held on bail. Going back to what Elena was saying, is the bail statute in New York is actually fairly progressive, and it's, we're actually one of, I think, two states in the entire country that only has whether or not this person is going to return to court as the determination of bail. So we don't have dangerousness in our bail statute, which is pretty rare in terms of like other states in the US and a lot of states like judges can actually look at the weight of the charges and the weight of evidence and like look at the dangerousness of that person in the community and make a bail determination on that. But in New York State, they're only supposed to make their bail determination based on the person's likelihood to return to court. Now let's do a hypothetical. Um, so your brother is sent to jail. What is your process going to look like getting your brother out of jail? Just as an example. So your brother is arrested 
right? So then they'll probably be arraigned within the next 24 hours. And if they're arrested in the Bronx, they'll be arraigned at the Bronx Criminal Court. And then at the arraignments, the the judge will decide whether or not the case has merit, whether or not the person should be RR'd, which means they'd be released on their own recognizance and they would be let go and they would just have to return it to their next court date on their own. Um, or they would set bail or remand them, which means that they would have to remain in jail to the next court date with no possibility of being released. And if bail is set, there would be an opportunity to pay bail for that person right from the court, which and at the Bronx Criminal Court, there's like a, a clerk's desk where you can pay bail right from there. Um, and what are the hours on that desk? The hours are, that's a great question. Um, you would think that it would be open whenever people are being arraigned so that people can come and pay bail whenever there is a need. It usually starts operating like 9.30 in the morning until maybe 11.30 or 12 at night even though arraignments go until one o'clock in the morning. And I think what makes it more difficult is that there's a lunch break in the middle of the day that's about an hour and a half that coincides with a bus that leaves for the jail. So if someone is not immediately available to post bail for someone who's just been arraigned and had bail set, or even if someone is available to post bail, which happens all the time with us, there is a distinct and very common possibility that the person who's just had bail set will be automatically put on this bus to jail without an opportunity for someone to bail them out from arraignments, leading to one night, two days, however much time in jail. All right, so I have work from nine to five, and my brother is on the bus to jail. What's my next step? What do, what do I do when I get out of work at five o'clock? He's now in jail at Rikers. So you're supposed to be able to go straight to any jail facility and pay bail for that person. They're supposed to, according to city council law and Department of Correction mandate, accept bail continuously and immediately. Um, but there is a phenomenon that we refer to as the blackout period, uh, where after a person is being transported between court and jail or between jail facilities, they are lost in the system. And the language that they use at the Department of Correction is that the paperwork follows the body. They refer to people as bodies when they're being processed. And they'll say, uh, sorry, we can't accept this payment because we don't have the paperwork. The body is not here. And so usually there is a day or a day and a half where the person's family is left to try and just imagine where their loved one might be because they're not found in any system. And there's no way for the jail, as they say, to accept the, their paperwork. Okay, so assuming my brother was arrested during the day, he's now been in jail for up to a day and a half. What does that look like for him in jail? What does he know about his bail? What does he know about the work I'm doing? How? What kind of opportunities has he had to communicate with me? Maybe Richard, you could take up from here. Sure. When someone gets processed in arraignment, they get an interview, which kind of gives information about the ties to the community and any contact information that they may have as a way to kind of convince the judge, give a recommendation to the judge from the agency interviewing him, uh, the criminal justice agency, as to whether or not this person should be released. After arraignment, that same agency would interview the person uh, to... Uh, see if there's anyone that can post bail in cases where bail is $5,000 or less. Now, uh, in that period of time when they are speaking with the criminal justice agency, they have an opportunity to call people um, because there's one phone in the cell that they have. But even though they're supposed to be given an opportunity to obtain the phone numbers on their phone before they're actually taken through arraignments and to the jail, they don't actually get that opportunity. In so if he hasn't memorized my number? You, he's not going to be able to reach you unless by any other 
possibility has someone else that can reach you. And not to be like glib or anything, but really, who memorizes people's numbers yeah. anymore? Yeah, and not being able to memorize your number would actually help. Would actually add negative scores on your CJ report because it would say that you don't have. And so they would they would be less likely to then recommend you for release because on the form it says you have no contacts. And what does his experience in the jail itself look like? Tell people a little bit about the state of our jails. Um, in 2018, since not everyone has seen the inside of one. From arraignments, once they, the per, your brother in this situation has the opportunity to reach out to people, um, whether or not he's actually given like a good chance to, to do it, they gets put on a bus and sent out to the facility. Now, it could be a long time before you can reach a phone, usually because they're going through an intake process. An intake process is basically the point when the facility is reaching, uh, is obtaining the information for everyone, obtaining fingerprints, starting the paperwork to process them and admit them into the facility. And that could take several, several hours, sometimes more than 24 hours, which shouldn't be the case. They should be on the bed within 24 hours of admission into the jail. Uh, and as a result, I've heard stories, I haven't gone through it myself, but I've heard stories from many, many clients where they told me I, I was on the floor on it at intake in a cell with over a dozen people, over two dozen people, just waiting for a bed and sleeping on the floor. If I, if someone had like a good opportunity to sleep on a bench, they would. But usually it's on the floor with a sheet of cardboard. Because of that, because of the way the bail system works, a lot of people who have bail set against them aren't going to be paying bail right away, which leads to high influx of intakes in the facility and overcrowding at the onset. So if there are more inmates than beds, then there are going to be inmates without beds. What if my brother is developmentally disabled or has some other kind of physical disability or mental disability? What, um, how does that change the intake process and how does that change the bail setting by the judge? In terms of the bail setting, it, it should be used as a factor to get them out and oftentimes we'll see people who have a diagnosis of some kind be sent into supervised release. It doesn't necessarily mean that the person would just be ROR. But with regard to the intake process, supposedly people are are supposed to be given medical attention from before the time they get to a facility, from central booking at arraignments. Um, we hear much more often than not that people are denied medical treatment or not given an opportunity to even say what medical attention they need so that it's not happening. I will say that there are, so we're, we're most of the time dealing with people who have been sent to the boat, uh, the Vernon C. Bain Center in Hunts Point. Rikers, if anyone needs more significant medical attention, I think usually they're sent over to Rikers, which has uh, its own medical has its own medical facility, but counterintuitively that makes it more difficult for us to pay their bail. It's much more difficult to process paperwork when someone is in a medical facility there and nearly impossible to reach them and tell them what's going on and that they're going to get out. All right, so I got off of work at 5. How um let's say my brother's bail was set at what's the most common number you guys see? A thousand. All right. So my my brother's bail is set at fifteen hundred dollars because let's say he had a prior arrest. What? How much money do I need to to scratch up? What do I need to do next? Who do I call? Fifteen hundred cash. So then you'd have to either come up with the cash yourself. Or... I have to come up with fifteen hundred dollars cash. Yeah, and yeah. And, and take it out in cash. I can't write a check. You can't write a personal check. You can write a cashier's. You can get a cashier's check from your bank. Okay, so I need to have $1,500 cash on hand. Right. Okay. Now, usually, uh, if people don't have 
1500 By the way, I don't. I don't have $1,500 cash, like, and, personally. And most people will have a fraction of that, which is where the second form of bail most commonly used comes into play. A lot of times they'll set, a fifth, in, in this case, if it's $1,500 cash bail, they'll set a $3,000 bond. Just oh, that's add. way better. So, <laughs> so now I can pay 10%. Three hundred dollars uh, still, right. non-refundable. Plus, non-refundable. Plus probably like a hundred dollar carrier fee for the bonds are actually bringing the slip over, and then they could just add on more charges as the process goes on. There's no limit um, to. There's no legal limits for how many fees or, or charges a bail bondsman can add. There's just very little oversight, and as the case goes on, and it could take several months. Like the, your loved one, your brother would have to check in with them, and they could add on charges as it goes. And they always could just threaten that if you don't pay this extra fee, then we'll revoke the bond and. We'll be back in jail. Okay, so I don't have enough money. What's next? So where were we? I don't have enough money for cash bail. I don't have fifteen hundred dollars. I don't have three hundred dollars for bail bond. What? What next? What's my next move? So uh, this is where the need for the Freedom Fund might come in. Without either a true organization like the Bronx Freedom Fund or a consortia of individuals like a church or a community center, like people have been doing for decades, to pool money and get your your brother out, he now faces a choice. He can either stay in jail, he can maintain his innocence and await his trial, which could be like, you know, months and months and months or years, or he can take this plea deal that is in front of him, cop out, go home, and now have a criminal record for the rest of his life. And um, I hope that everyone knows what having a criminal record does. But just in case, maybe some people are from another country. In the United States, if he takes, if he pleads guilty, what does the rest of his life look like? And let's just say he's pleading guilty to a misdemeanor. But even before he pleads guilty, like the couple days that he's in jail, he could lose his job, lose his housing. If he yes. is in a homeless shelter, he could lose the bed. Um, if he custody of his kids. Yeah. Yes. Um, so if, before he pleads yeah. guilty, a lot is going to be taken. And there's so many, you know, there's so many assumptions we're making in this hypothetical. We're making assumptions that I, as the sister, have money for transportation to go to the jail multiple times. I'm probably not going one time. So that's transportation to and from. And spending we're, a whole day there. We're assuming like that I have, time af- I have time to take off work or time after work. We're assuming that... Um, if I have children, that I have money to pay for childcare or, or someone to watch the children that I have. Um, we're assuming that there's someone to watch his children or a place for his children to stay. Like you said, he could lose custody of his children. We're assuming that his job, if he has one, will take him back at the end of this experience, regardless of whether or not he's innocent. We're um, assuming that you can go eight hours or ten hours without bathroom, food, or water. Yes, so the place where you pay bail... I actually went yesterday on behalf of Dollar Bail Brigade, Woo-hoo, and I paid. Awesome. I paid my first bail yesterday, and I don't know. I'm like personally, I'm a Christian, and I'm like religious, uh, and I personally think that like it was very much intentional that that happened the night before I had this interview. Totally. Because yeah. yeah, I was prepping. Yeah, I was reading articles that Jacob had sent me, but there is, like I said, I said during this hypothetical, there's nothing that prepares you for the real thing. Tell me, tell me what I saw yesterday in the room um, where we pay bail. Tell me about the Vernon C. Bain Center, what that looks like, where it's located, how isolated it is. Vernon C. Bain Center is the far reaches of the Bronx over in Hunts Point, uh, which is home to, in that vicinity of the boat, uh, warehouses, waste disposal facilities, It's the stinkiest place in the whole city. Yeah, I mean, in particular, the boat (laughs) is wedged between 
the sanitation plant and fish market and, and the East the River on the Long Road and then the East River's on the other side. It is the smallest and there's place no there's no subways that go there. Nope. Only buses. The no. buses don't come super regularly. And it's a pretty long walk. It's like a twenty also minute walk. It's bus. a twenty minute walk. So if I have a physical disability or an accessibility need, just getting there will be hard, let alone then doing the twenty minute walk from the bus to the front door of the bail center. It's all caged in, so even if you're going to pay someone's bail, you already feel like you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And, and a, they... another point is that it is actually a literal boat. It is a barge and I think it's like the biggest boat jail in the world, to my understanding. Um, and it was actually only supposed to be temporary. It was created in the late 90s. It was supposed to last like two decades before we had. So then the room where you actually pay bail, like you said, there's no bathroom in that room. So again, if I have a physical disability that causes me to need the bathroom more often than once every eight hours, which I think is most human bodies. Um, you gotta go all the way to a pizza shop. You know, 20 minutes away. Yep. 20 minutes or more, depending on how fast you walk. And there's no food or drink or water supplied in that room. You have to bring everything yourself. And the room is also not heated. So, like, when you're there in the winter, the room is freezing. Yep. And it's just plastic chairs and a window. Um, And the wind, I think the window, I don't know if you experienced this yesterday, but that I think is a pretty notable experience of being in that room that... You said already that when you go there, you know, you're treated like you've done something wrong, that like this process of going to pay bail for your loved one is its own punishment. And we find, you know, we go up to that window, which is the only way to communicate with someone who wields all this power over you and over their loved one. And no one comes up to the window. She acts like you're inconveniencing her. Yes. Like, or he or, you know, whoever's at the window. They don't come to the window until it is convenient. They see you there. They don't come up. There's a sign that says, do not knock on the window. Sometimes the window is covered in paper. So it's impossible for them to even know that there's someone waiting. And can someone just talk about the Dollar Bail Brigade, since you guys work so closely with them, and what their kind of goals are? Yeah, I guess we can all jump in. But the the Dollar Bail Brigade grew out of a need from the Freedom Fund and also from Bronx Defenders, where we saw a lot of clients who were being held in on one, two, three dollars. The reason for that is when someone has multiple cases at one time and they are in on one of them, in on bail, the only way statutorily for Department of Correction and for the Office of Court Administration to track someone who's in on multiple cases and to make sure they're getting the time served for one case, more than one case at a time, is by having bail on all of them. So they'll set a dollar bail as an indicator that they're in on multiple cases, but it functions the same way as regular bail. So someone can be held in without knowing it on a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, without an opportunity to pay it for themselves, without the contact information to find someone else to pay it. So um, we helped create this group originally of just NYU students to go and go forth and pay these dollar bails, save, you know, hours of other people's time. And yeah, and so, you know, some of the people I was talking to um, on my group chat, they were like, but what if he did it? And I said, first of all, that's not the issue at hand. The issue at hand is preserving the presumption of innocence, which is something that they said um, at that event with the dollar bail grade that really hit me, right? Um, regardless of whether or not this person is innocent or guilty, they deserve to be free, right? And dollar bail is inherently just made to kind of oppress people, especially people of color, especially people in poor communities. Some of the questions that kind of came up is like, so cash bail, right? It's completely set on money. And I wrote, what makes a rich person more trustworthy, more qualified, more worthy of sleeping in their own bed tonight? 
Um, and I kind of named him Mike. I changed his name, obviously, to, to protect his identity. And I said, what are you thinking about, Mike? Have you been to jail before? Are you scared? So, and like, I went, I started at 630. Um, and I went to, I traveled to the barge. I went in. They told me to come call back at nine. I called back at nine and went back again. So we're now four trips in and I didn't finish paying the bail until 1030. So it was a four hour trip. Um, but luckily I'm blessed enough to have that free time, to have an unlimited Metro card, to have all these things that I can go and do this for someone, um, that I've never met. And so like, tell me for you guys, your work with this organization every day is what obviously means a lot to you. What does it mean to free strangers? You know what I mean? To free people that are not personally related to you. Why do you guys get up every morning and do this? I think the circumstances that led up to someone being incarcerated is just so frustrating that being able to undo it, if only for one person at a time, is such a a motivator because not only are we impacting someone's life, we are showing others that, look, this person isn't paying out of their own pocket. But as happens with the vast majority of our clients, they're going to prove to you that they're not a flight risk, despite the fact that they're being held in, they were being held in on bail because of the uh, presumed flight risk that they posed. So as frustrating as it is, and as you've experienced to have to deal with corrections, um, deal with the bail process, see these things day to day, being able to undo that for one person at a time is in itself for me a motivator because I know that the unfortunate thing is it shouldn't be like this, but without us involved, it would it would be worse for someone who's already had it rough, for someone who's been, been held in because they don't have the money. Personally, I hate the fact that the impact that we have is born out of benevolence. It should be born out of the rights of individuals. It's um, not charity almost. Right. It's, uh, it's liberating in a way yourself, right? Because you're a Bronxite. Um, we're all New Yorkers. And if people are um, incarcerated unjustly, then their oppression directly leads to ours. I mean, that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. And Elena, as director, where where do you want to continue to direct the Bronx Freedom Fund? What's, what's your goal, your mission as an organization? Yeah, I mean, the end goal is to be able to shut down, is to be able to cause enough of a ruckus and to demonstrate through our data and through our clients' voices and stories that this is a messed up and unjust and completely unnecessary and uh, on its head, horrible in every way system that does not, that should not exist. And so... Your goal is to be unemployed, Alina. (laughs) Totally. And I think, you know, we're all on the same page about that, that we're coming from a a orientation of decarceration and of abolition and of reform and of not perpetuating our, our need at all. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, to end cash bail, to end bail bonds, and to really say that the amount of money you have shouldn't be a measure of whether or not you pose a flight risk or whether or not you're a danger to society. And I'm not saying that people who are, you know, real threats to society shouldn't have the care that they need, um, whether it's mental health care, whether it's, you know, protecting communities, you know, or individuals from harm that they're seeking to cause. But if a judge sets a bail at a dollar, what do you feel that they're saying about that person? What do you feel that, uh, what is the, what kind of message is the judge set, set, sending by setting a dollar bail? I don't think they're saying anything about the person. And the way I, 
I'm saying it like that because I don't think they see the person as someone who's being held in on a dollar. Dollar bail is like one of those really weird back in the day administrative workarounds that end up impacting people's standard of living by keeping them in jail. I think a lot of times when something like a dollar bail is placed, there's almost no thinking as to how could this backfire somewhere down the line. It shows the city and judges like um, just like lack of consideration and moral authority to like consider what being in jail an extra night is. And you said they call them bodies. They don't call them people. They call them bodies. And tell me a little bit more about the dehumanization that happens in the cash bail system and in the criminal justice yeah, system I mean, in I general. That really speaks on like how the bail system, the pretrial justice system, and then the criminal justice system as a whole is just like a remnant of slavery and racism and that's how people are treated. Like they're not treated like humans and they're treated like numbers or bodies. Um, and that's how the system keeps on recycling itself, and that's why only certain communities are over-incarcerated and over-policed, like the ones that we deal with. And that was another thing I wanted to just touch on, the significance of having the barge in one of the poorest communities in the United States, and also in one of the highest percentage of people of color communities in the United States. You're, You're centralizing these jails, and then you're filling them with people from that community. Did anyone else kind of make that connection a little bit or see the physical structure or location of jails playing a, playing a role a in the criminal shit. justice? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That group uh, helped release a statement about a proposal to build a new jail in their neighborhood. Yeah, 10 blocks from my house. Right. and Where I'm seeking to start a family and raise my kids mm-hmm. of color. So. And their space, their neighborhood space that they've been working so hard to improve many uh, ideas and thought and proposals put into it was just being taken away from them and used for the purposes of taking the same people from that in the community and filling the jail up with them. And why would I want to have, like as a woman of color, why would I want to bring a child into this world just for the criminal justice system to take them away? Mm-hmm. You know, that's like very powerful for me thinking about like, How am I going to teach my child to stay away from the cops? How am I going to teach my child to like, you know, you know, what, how they have to carry themselves as a child of color in 2018 when they shouldn't, when they should just be able to play like everyone else. And I think that kind of comes to like my closing question, which was Bronx Freedom Fund. That's a very strong statement. And I kind of want each of you to say like, what does freedom mean to you? What is that freedom you're working towards? What does it look like? I mean, I think it's a hard thing to define. It's a, it's an individual word and an individual meaning. And so I guess the, the clearest way to define it would be the ability for self-determination and to define it for, for oneself. So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I would say it would be allowing not just our clients, but all people to have agency of their lives. And I think that's one thing that the criminal justice system really takes away. Like you second you enter it you are a number and every aspect of your life is controlled by someone else and you literally your movement when you eat when you sleep where you sit where you stand it literally is completely taken away from you so i think restoring that and making that like a human value a right and for me it's uh along with what uh my colleagues said just taking advantage of uh, the privileges i've been afforded uh and using it that against the system that grants those privileges that allows me to enjoy those privileges because at the end of the day uh, one person who can be in on jail be in on bail because they don't have the money means that that's something that can happen to anyone something that uh, 
drives me and I think there's an easy way for people to kind of ignore that but in ignoring that you're allowing that to really impact the human rights that you're supposedly entitled to because someone else isn't being granted those uh, those same rights. So agency, self-determination, and freedom for all. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, you know, something that we can all get behind. And now if someone in New York City or someone in other parts of the country wants to help support your cause or wants to get involved either financially with their free time, volunteering, promoting what you're doing, right? There's a lot of ways that we can help promote social justice causes, even if we don't have money or means, how do they get in touch with you? You can find us on Twitter. You can find all of our individual emails on our website, thebronxfreedomfund.org. On Twitter, we are at Bronx Freedom. Uh, we are. We would love to educate people about the bail system and to hear from people about what they want to see in bail reform. Um, so always looking for partners to schedule teach-ins or to have meetings or events. Um, would love involvement from anyone. Yeah. And- I think one thing that I always tell people is to like go to arraignments. It is a, a like a public place, and anyone can go there and just see what's going on and really like see who's being arraigned in your community and why and what charges. Um, and just get a grasp of the system, and then also just talk to people, talk to your networks about the presumption of innocence and monetary bail and who it's affected. Bail is one of those things that is so commonplace in the U.S. that it's almost it's hard for a lot of people who aren't involved in any way with the criminal justice system to see it go away or like see why would that go away yeah but so was slavery right right (laughs) and the point is that you know sometimes things have to be changed Mm -hmm. and i think those conversations that yona alluded to would go a long way to you know helping achieve what we're trying to achieve which is reform the bail system and abolish it and after after yesterday i'm gonna do one last plug and i'm gonna say dollar bail brigade if you're in new york city you don't have to sign up for every night you can sign up for one night and if they need you, they'll email you. It's very, it's an easy process. It's a long process. Um, get your friends involved and go pay dollar bail. Because at the end of the day, last night was a Tuesday night. And with a dollar, I was able to let someone sleep in their own bed. An 18-year-old. You know what I mean? He's probably going back home to mom. He's probably going back home to his family. And he's not going to spend another hour in what Elena very rightly called a slave ship. Um, and so, and just thinking about how, like, I was, like, running, like, rushing. Because in my head, um, like, I, I'll mention this in the other episode, too, but I was arrested during Occupy Wall Street. So I spent 28 hours at the tomb. Um, and I was in solitary confinement because they said I assaulted a police officer, which I didn't. And even though that case is expunged from the record... Um, I still carry it with me in my DNA. I have PTSD. I carry it with me every day. So no, like knowing firsthand what he was feeling, you know, probably feeling, probably going through, um, at least from my experience and knowing that like the sooner I got there and paid his bail, the suit, the less time he'd have to spend there. So I really do want to thank you on behalf of all the residents of the Bronx of the work you're doing. Um, it really is changing the landscape and making a difference and i hope you guys are unemployed in the next five years and that cash bail is eliminated and we can move on to another issue Um, because i think this is an easy fix more money doesn't make you more qualified um, to be free thank you guys so much for coming on the show thank you